0: From uh, about 15 years on up uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable we are all evil in some form or another yes i am evil. not a hundred percent but i am evil. my mother was a, a sick angry hungry and very sad woman i hated her it. I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello again, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we sometimes veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to my patrons who voted for this episode. Thank you so much. You are truly appreciated. And for anyone else please feel free to join my patrons so that you can vote on who will be covered next or get early access to the podcasts. Like, share, and subscribe. It might just help our little community grow. Today's podcast was voted for by patrons and literally begged for repeatedly and will be on Tsutomu Miyazaki, who was born on August 21st, 1962 in Tokyo, Japan. So as we do, Let's get into some history for that time. So for 1962, we see the space race in full swing. John Glenn became the first American to orbit the earth in February. President John F. Kennedy asked Congress for $531 million to put a man on the moon before the end of the decade. NASA's Ranger 4 spacecraft was launched and crashed on the moon during April. The spacecraft was launched from Cape Canaveral with the mission to study the moon, return data back to Earth, and transmit images. Unfortunately, the mission was a failure as it failed to relay any useful information back to NASA due to a computer and battery issue. Ranger 4 stopped operating after 10 hours of flight and later crashed into the surface of the moon. Also in 1962, And speaking of John F. Kennedy, we also had the Cuban Missile Crisis. It started with the United States backing CIA-trained forces of Cuban exiles to overthrow the Cuban regime, called the Bay of Pigs. The response was that the USSR planned to deploy missiles in Cuba, which brought the world to the brink of another world war. The U.S., from orders from JFK, blockaded Cuba, and the USSR finally agreed to dismantle Soviet silos. That's where the missiles were. When I say we were centimeters away from actual nuclear war, I'm not even kidding a little bit. It was very close. Also this year, Marilyn Monroe made one of her last public appearances at a birthday celebration, for the U.S. President, John F. Kennedy, before her death. The event became an iconic moment in pulp culture when the actress sang an intimate, sultry, and memorable rendition of Happy Birthday to the World Leader. Monroe wore an intricately designed, skin-tight beaded dress that Kim Kardashian ruined that was considered a little scandalous at the time. The performance added to the rumors that the two were having an affair and only three months later, Marilyn Monroe died of a drug overdose, ruled a probable suicide under suspicious circumstances. And I agree that it's definitely suspicious. I think I'm wearing the tinfoil hat on the one at least about Marilyn Monroe. Brazil beat Czechoslovakia 3-1 to to win the 1962 World Cup. The first Walmart discount store was opened by Sam Walton in Bentonville, Arkansas, and the first Kmart department store opened in Garden City, Michigan. Algeria gained independence from France. Jamaica gained independence from Great Britain. Some other notable people born in 1962 include John Bon Jovi, Jim Carrey, Joan Cusack, Evander Holyfield, Demi Moore, Jodie Foster. Paula Abdul, Tom Cruise, John Stewart, Wesley Snipes, and Steve Carell. So, this was the atmosphere that Tsutomu was born into. His father was Katsumi and his mother was Raiko. I believe I pronounced that okay. Zutomu was born into a fairly wealthy family as his father ran a very popular daily newspaper in the region, the Akigawa Shimbun. Now, Only a couple of sources stated this, so again, grain of salt and all, but allegedly, it came out in his later court trial that his biological mother was actually his older sister, that he was a product of incest between her and his own father, and of course, Reiko raised him as her son. It was also said that he was born premature, not even weighing five pounds. He also was born with a condition called carpal coalition, where the bones in his wrist were fused together. He was not able to move his wrists independently, so if he wanted to move his hands, he had to move the entire forearm. And then as his body matured, as it grew, it was said that his fingers got very long and Nosferatu-like for a visual. Satomu was reported as being an extremely quiet and shy young boy, but he was also an excellent student. Living in his lonely world, he was highly introverted and withdrawn. When he was 5 years old, a fellow inmate teased him about his, quote, funny hands. After that, in family photos, he never showed his hands and his eyes were often closed as well. By the time he had begun elementary school, Sotomu was almost invisible. His teachers and classmates remembered him as a quiet, lonely child who seemed utterly incapable of making friends. But just like any other young boy, he did have dreams. In the third grade, he wrote an essay, quote, When I grow up, I want to buy a car and go driving. I'll stop at a restaurant and eat some curry rice or something. I might even visit my relatives. End quote. But more often than not, he was increasingly blaming his deformity for his inability to achieve anything concrete, and so he began to stay up into the night reading comic books. As he got older, he studied and became the first from his junior high school to pass the entrance exam to Midai Nakano High School. Hope I didn't butcher that. And this was no small feat because the school is described as one of the best schools in Japan and has a history for 140 years. It has four campuses located in Tokyo, the center of Japan. He did have to commute two hours each way every day for three years. It was said that though he did try for a while, he began to lose interest in his studies. When his peers would gather together to do, you know, young teenager things, he would instead isolate himself and draw his own little comic books. He had always been fascinated with Japanese graphic novels or manga. This turned into a near obsession with hentai, which is like manga, but very pornographic. And while his father was well respected and worked hard, in his spare time, His focus was mostly collecting clips about politics and seemed far too busy to pay attention to his son. His mother also worked, but rather than spend quality time with him, she would just buy him stuff to keep him occupied. Neither parent really stopped to address the growing problem with just how introverted their son was. His grandfather, it would seem, was the only family member whom he was close to. His older sister was, of course, busy with her own things, and his two younger sisters acted like he disgusted them. Now, some sources say Tsutomu was physically immature and had a micro penis, which he had been teased about as well, making it impossible for him to have any relationships with girls as he began high school. One schoolmate said, quote, his penis is no thicker than a pencil and no longer than a toothpick end quote. And listen, guys, we all know how cruel teenagers can be, but it was said that his sex drive was, by far and wide, much higher than normal. By the last part of high school, Tsutomu had lost all interest in school. He had intended on studying English and becoming a teacher, attending a prestigious college that was connected to the rather prestigious junior high and high school he attended, But due to his rapidly growing frustration with his station in life, he let his grades slip down so far that he was not admitted. And this is when he began having thoughts of suicide. And this was Tsutomu's childhood. So let's take a look. Bullies have a tendency to pick on children who have deformities or disabilities. Statistics show that between one and four and one in three U.S. students say they have been bullied at school. Having a cleft lip or multiple teeth, or in Sutomo's case, his wrists, does not justify being made fun of by other kids, but it happens all the time. This sort of thing can leave a child unable to concentrate on their schoolwork because they're too worried about how others view them, and this certainly holds true in this story. The sad truth is that most students with deformities have few friends or no friends at all. Through no fault of their own, some children are subjected to stares and looks of disgust simply because of how they look. Ideally, bullied children should tell a trusted adult about what's going on in their world instead of withdrawing in general, which is so often the case. The sooner an adult knows what the child is going through, the faster the situation can be addressed. Addressing their deformity or handicap while they're still young will boost a child's confidence long-term and correct their negative body image. In other words, their children won't spend the rest of their school years walking around with their heads down because their body image is so poor. Statistics show that when interventions are conducted early enough, students refrain from bullying tactics and kids with deformities or disabilities are no longer regularly attacked. Consequently, it's important for schools to implement zero tolerance policies when it comes to bullying. And when I say zero, Tolerance policies for bullying, I mean hold the bully responsible, do not hold the bullied child responsible for fighting back, for standing up for themselves, because the current school system, utter bullshit. Open communication is critical in these situations. The child suicide rate wouldn't be at an all-time high if kids would just feel more comfortable about letting adults know what's going on when they're being bullied. But, as we heard, his parents were, quite frankly, too busy. Both worked, and there's no shame in that, as many households have to have both parents in the workforce. But it was quite apparent that neither of his parents took the time to really check in with him and how he was doing. His father was running a successful newspaper business, and when he wasn't at work, well, he spent most of his free time focusing on politics, which, side note, many people should unplug from politics, please. your own sanity. Now, it would seem that at least his mother was somewhat tuned in to his unhappiness, but rather than really work with him to address his self-esteem and perhaps communicating with the school about the bullying he was enduring, she just bought him material things that she believed would placate him in the immediate. And while things are nice to have in childhood, they are, under no circumstances, a substitute for a modicum of effective parenting. My childhood is included in this. And though it isn't really a teacher's job to parent a student, I didn't really find any information stating that his teachers tried to help him better integrate with his peers. If there are any consequences for the bullies, I found no information about that either. So, as many withdrawn and isolated children do, He got lost in the world of fantasy, and his particular flavor was comic books and Japanese graphic novels. He did sort of take a last stab at trying to impress his father and integrate into society by working very hard and getting admitted to a very prestigious junior high and high school. But when he saw that nothing in his personal or social life improved whatsoever, he stopped making such an effort. And I think we can all relate to that in one way or another. Yes, he was born into a moderately wealthy family, which would be nice, right? Of course. But money can't buy mental health stability or feeling like you are unconditionally loved or that you are valued as an individual person. And then the business with his penis size. Listen, men are born with what they're born with. And I don't condone anyone making jokes about that. One must assume other boys saw his, you know, situation for maybe dressing out for PE class or whatever, but for him to be bullied about that is just unthinkable. There was mention that as he got through puberty, his sex drive was very high, so it stands to reason that since he wasn't able to experience the, you know, natural progression of figuring out girls and navigating all of that, he lost himself into ever-increasing sexual publications. The one person Sutomu actually felt like loved him and accepted him was his grandfather, whom he was incredibly close to. So at least he did have that. But let's get back into the story. So Sutomu eventually found a love of photography and decided to go to a junior college where he studied to be a photo technician. He graduated in 1983 at the age of 21. His new hobby was to go out and take photos of girls playing tennis. Then he would pleasure himself to them later. But it didn't take long for this to become boring for him, so he began to up the intensity and taboo nature. He also began collecting pornographic anime, porn magazines, violent films, as well as child pornography, eventually collecting over 5,000 videotapes. He would later admit that he tortured and killed animals. One cat he threw into the river, another he submerged into boiling water. He also said that he strangled his own dog to death with a strand of wire. So he moved out of his parents' house for a little while, but ultimately he had to move back in, forced to share a room with his older sister slash perhaps biological mother. He seemed to strongly dislike all of his family except for his beloved grandfather, who it was said paid a lot of attention to him. But in May of 1988, when Satomu was 26 years old, his grandfather died. This would be his snapping point. You see, he absolutely was consumed with grief and even consumed some of his grandfather's cremated ashes. This would signify the severing of the final thread connecting him to society. Not long after his grandfather's death, one of his sisters caught him watching her while she showered. She confronted him and he attacked her. And then when the mother tried to intervene, well, he attacked her too. Finally, in August of 1988, he could control his urges no longer. So this is where you get my disclaimer disclaimer, because the rest of the story involves a child assault and murder. So if that's going to be squeamish for you, then I suggest you shut it off or whatever you need to do. Okay. We're still friends. It's fine. It's completely fine. Okay. So four-year-old Mari Kono was playing outside at a friend's house as Sutomu, drove past and saw her. He stopped, he approached the 4-year-old little girl and lured her into his car. He then took her to a secluded area under a bridge in the woods. Satomu began taking some photos of her and then he began strangling her until she was dead. He then took off her clothes, sexually assaulted her body and left the scene with her clothes. After her disappearance, police squad cars with loudspeakers patrolled the streets, warning parents to keep their children in sight at all times. He did return to her remains after some time, when the body was beginning to decay, and removed her hands and feet and kept them as trophies in his closet. Zotomu put the rest of her remains in his furnace, grinding them into powder, then mailed them to her own family he included in the package several of her teeth photos he had taken of her clothes and a postcard that said mari cremated bones investigate prove nearly two months later Tsutomu saw seven-year-old Masami Yoshizawa I hope I pronounced that correctly walking along a country road and offered her a ride He then took her to the same place where he had killed Mari. He photographed Masami, strangled her, then sexually assaulted her corpse. But when the little body shuddered involuntarily, it spooked him and he ran back to his car and drove off. He left her remains less than 100 meters from where the bones of Mari Kono lay whitening in the sun. He did, however, take her clothes with him. At this point, he also began calling his victim's parents and breathing heavily into the phone. If they didn't answer, he would sometimes let the phone ring for 20 minutes straight. So in December of 1988, 26-year-old Tsutomu saw four-year-old Erika Namba walking along the road. He stopped, grabbed her, and forced her into his car. He stopped in a parking lot. Turned and began ordering her to remove her clothes while he took photos of her. It was said that she was sobbing. After he then strangled her, he proceeded to tie her hands and feet together behind her back, wrapped her carefully in a sheet, and put her in his trunk. He dumped her clothes in a wooded area and her remains in another dark wooded area. He then decided to send Erica's parents a postcard with a message made from magazine cutouts that said, Erica, cold, cough, throat, rest, death. But this time he was nearly caught dumping the remains by a witness, so he decided to lay low for a while. Six months, to be exact. So once Erica's remains were found, the police knew three little girls' murders were connected, and they began a big investigation. They were able to interview a couple of men who had seen Satomo's car on the side of the road near where Erica's body had been found, and they recalled that the car had specific plates, but misidentified the model as a Toyota Corolla, which was an error the police realized only after they had checked out more than six thousand corollas this could have been their strongest lead and with the missing girl posters and media attention on the murders he indeed laid low for a while but he did avidly follow these news reports he sat down and wrote a three-page letter and mailed it to his first victim's home the society desk of his father's own newspaper also received a copy along with a Polaroid-type photo of Mari. The letter was entitled Crime Confession and signed Yuko Imada, a pun on Now I'll Tell. Quote, I put the cardboard box with Mari's remains in it in front of her home. I did everything, from the start of the Mari incident to the finish. On camera, her mother said the report gave her new hope that Mari might still be alive. I knew then that I had to write this confession so Mari's mother would not continue to hope in vain i say again the remains are Mari's End quote. so for reference there had been a very brief period where the remains were not identified as Mari's and some time after another letter from Yuko Imada this one labeled simply confession spoke of the changes Tsutomu had observed in Mari's dead body quote, Before I knew it, the child's corpse had gone rigid. I wanted to cross her hands over her breast, but they wouldn't budge. Pretty soon the body gets red spots all over it. Big red spots. Or like you'd cover her whole body with red hanko seals. After a while, the body is covered with stretch marks. It is so rigid before, but now it feels like it's full of water. And it smells. How it smells like nothing you've ever smelled in this whole wide world." End quote. So in June of 1989, he began growing restless. He started skipping work more often to spend hours sitting in his room, editing his precious videotapes. But he got up and ventured out and eventually spotted five-year-old Ayako Nomoto playing at a park and began taking pictures of her. He then approached her, grabbed her, and forced her into his car. He then killed her, later stating, quote, She kicked and kicked, but went limp in four or five minutes. End quote. To make sure she was dead, he taped her mouth and tied her hands with vinyl rope, then wrapped the body in a sheet and put it in the trunk of the car. He stopped at a camera store to rent a video camera, then drove to his new apartment, waited a couple of hours, then retrieved the remains from the trunk and took them inside. This was when he began to display all manner of disgusting and vile behaviors toward this little girl's corpse. Tsutomu also decided to drink blood from one of the little girl's hands and consumed some of the flesh. He dumped parts of the body away from his apartment, but he retained some. Two days later, the odor of the decomposing corpse pieces, if you will, became unbearable. He knew he had to dispose of the remains, so he hid the torso near the public toilet at a nearby cemetery at midnight, four days after the murder. Only her little torso was discovered. The next month, he saw two sisters at a park, and he managed to lure one away, while the other sister ran to their father for help. The father ran out and promptly found a naked Sutomu preparing to photograph his naked daughter's genitals, but Sutomu ran off. The police were waiting for him by his car when he returned. Thank God. He was arrested after returning to his car to flee the scene and charged with, quote, forcing a minor to commit indecent acts, end quote. The authorities searched his apartment, which just consisted of two rooms, and were shocked at what they found. He had almost 6,000 tapes that included anime, hentai, which again is Japanese anime pornography, horror movies, disturbing child pornography, and much more. He also had a large collection of photographs of his victims in varying stages throughout their horrible ordeal with him, and then after. Tsutomu showed no emotion or remorse during his questioning and his father refused to hire a lawyer for his son, stating that it wouldn't be fair to the victims. And on some level, I find myself not disagreeing with him. So the public defender's office was forced to look long and hard before finding two lawyers who were willing to take this case. The angle they went with was, of course, that he was of diminished responsibility, stating, quote, The more we see of him, the more we think he lives in a different world. We felt the initial report did not establish Miyazaki's mental capabilities beyond reasonable doubt, so we asked for a second evaluation. If he was found mentally incompetent, he would be sent to a mental facility with the possibility of being released at some point or he would be found mostly competent and get a life sentence with no possibility of parole. Ultimately, he was found sane, which meant the death penalty. During his trial, he stated that his alter ego was called Ratman, and Ratman is the one that forced him to kill. And as he displayed little to no emotion when he was questioned, Even less was displayed during the trial, and he was even observed sleeping at times. He blamed his behavior on the hentai and horror movies he was obsessed with. His psychologist presented a list of obsessions, right? So pedophilia, necrophilia, sadism, fetishism, and cannibalism. It was suggested that he was a pedophile first and a murderer second. Quote, Killing was an extension of his interest in little girls, a way of possessing them. That's what they said. So his father, who was deeply, deeply shamed, would go on to admit that he should have paid more attention to his son, and then he took his own life in 1994. So Tomu was hanged on June 17, 2008, because, you know, the appeal process and whatnot. Now one psychology team determined him to have a cognitive disability while another team concluded that he was schizophrenic and he had multiple personality disorder, which is called dissociative identity disorder. Now a third team found that he had a personality disorder, but I wasn't able to find exactly which one they determined him to have. So let's talk about that, right? Cognitive disability is not off the table. He was capable of staying focused and when he applied himself, he won entrance to a most prestigious school. But if it is true that he was the product of incest, then of course you have to weigh that into the equation, right? Do I believe him to have dissociative identity disorder? It is extremely unlikely. Having an alter ego does not mean that you are dissociative or you have dissociative identity disorder. Now, causes of this disorder are connected with extreme trauma and or abuse during childhood. And other than his grandfather dying, and yes, he was definitely emotionally neglected. There's no denying that. He was not abused, nor did he experience any serious trauma. I feel quite safe in saying that that was not the issue at all. Now, a personality disorder, I can lean towards that. But which one? He wasn't capable of taking any responsibility for his actions. He was glib, had flat affect, little to no empathy. He was withdrawn, isolated, socially awkward, and couldn't seem to get any enjoyment out of his activities unless he was pushing the envelope, you know, like taking more and more intense imagery to get his desired result, if you will. So rather than my usual just giving it to you, I wonder if you can come up with your theories as to which personality disorder he might have had or if it was a personality disorder at all. Leave me a comment on this video or DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing or come join the Serial Killing a Podcast fan page on Facebook. We've re- reached and actually went past 500 members so thank you so much guys. But either way, leave me a comment or a message and let me know. What are your theories? What do you think was going on with him? And as always, thank you guys so, so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I continue to be so, so appreciative. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day. Anybody who killed more than two or three people was a mass murderer and whether it was all at one place or over an extended period of time. And then uh, in the early 80s, they came up with this differentiation called serial killing.